0: Walk walk, Daniel. Walk walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you, walk, tell you, Hello and welcome to this episode of Finnerin's Wake. The purpose of this segment is, once a week, at the end of each week, to recapitulate, to recap the three most important news stories of the past seven days, the three most consequential events to have happened in America and abroad of which, no matter how busy you are, you'll want to be apprised. It's my humble aim to bring that awareness to you as concisely, honestly, and eloquently as I can. I know how limited and precious your time is, and just how quickly it disappears. I also know how much there is to know these days, and the difficulty in finding a dispassionate and reliable source from whom to get good information. My goal is to give you this information and to leave you just a bit more enlightened than you were when you came. Today, we'll cover the following three news items. Uvalde shooting update, the Supreme Court decisions, and Joe Biden falling off his bike. We begin with an update to the events that transpired in Uvalde, Texas, just a few short weeks ago. You'll recall, in that town's Robb Elementary School, a deranged killer by the name of Salvador Ramos killed 21 innocent people, of whom 19 were children. They were all between 9 and 10 years of age. Fourth graders gathered for their last day of school before the summer vacation, Two of Ramos's victims, Irma Garcia and Eva Morales, were teachers at the school, to whom we'll shortly return. The comments that follow in no way diminish the unconscionable evil of Ramos's murderous act, around which I'm still having and forever will have difficulty wrapping my head. The vileness of his character, the Pravity of his soul, the indifference he felt toward his fellow human beings, can never be measured—at least not by man. That said, the cowardice of the Uvalde Police Department, the sheer pusillanimity with which it responded to this acute and lethal danger, is—I'm sad to relate—similarly unfathomable. At the very best. The police's response can be described as having been incompetent, perhaps even negligent—terms of law, no doubt, into which the attorneys of the twenty-one grief-stricken families are closely looking. But I don't think they can, at this point, avoid the ignominious epithet of cowardly, with which, at least by this speaker, they've now been stamped each day after the shooting, we learned, to our shock and horror, that the authorities failed to do that for which they were given their badges and guns. They failed, first and foremost, to serve and protect their community. They failed to intervene at the moment when a classroom of innocent children and teachers were most in need. They failed to neutralize a threat whom they were adequately equipped to combat. They treated desperate people, parents trying to breach their cordon in order to enter the school and save their children in a rough and ungentlemanly way. Colonel Stephen McCraw, director of the State Department of Public Safety, appropriately summed up the response of his officers when he called it an abject failure. Abject indeed. Speaking before a panel of Texas state senators, McCraw revealed that, quote, three minutes after the suspect entered the West Building, there was a sufficient number of armed officers wearing body armor to isolate, distract, and neutralize the subject. The only thing, he explained, stopping a hallway of dedicated officers from entering room 111 and 112 in which the children were killed, was the on-scene commander, who decided to place the lives of officers before the lives of children. Incredible. This on-scene commander, from whom badge, gun, and pension should be with all alacrity stripped, is Chief Pete arendando It was ultimately his decision to delay engaging the gunmen and it's upon his shoulders most of the weight of this grave mistake weighs. Highlighting the travesty, McCraw said, The officers had weapons. The children had none. The officers had body armor. The children had none. The officers had training. The subject had none. One hour, fourteen minutes, and eight seconds. That's how long children waited, and the teachers waited, to be rescued. One of the slain teachers, Eva Morales, called her husband Ruben Ruiz, an officer on the Uvalde force. She was at the perilous time of her communication shot, and very near to death. Ruiz, summoning up his valor defied orders, and attempted to rush into the school. He was detained by Chief Arundando's men, to whom he was then forced to hand over his gun. Miss Morales, his beloved wife, died. We also learned that officers had shields, capable, one would think, of deflecting an oncoming bullet, and that they failed even to attempt to open the door. Waiting for a set of the janitor's keys, none of them even tried to jiggle the handle, which apparently was unlocked. A disgrace added to an atrocity, in whose wake the United States Senate, and now the House, have passed new gun legislation. Entitled the Safer Communities Act, the bill hopes to satisfy those who, most urgently and vocally demanded that our Congress do something. Something, of course, isn't synonymous with something prudent or something measured and wise. Something isn't the manifestation of propriety. To do something is, by definition, to do anything, to act merely for action's sake. This really is no way to legislate but it was enough to rouse our congressmen to craft this bipartisan bill. Eighty pages in length, it was passed quickly, in a day or two. Some Republican senators bemoaned the short amount of time given to them for its perusal. According to Robert Leider, professor of law and contributor to the Wall Street Journal, the bill, quote, "...expands the categories of those to whom it's unlawful to sell guns and ammunition." End quote. This will include those convicted of felonies as juveniles, in addition to pre-existing law, with which I don't, at first glance, disagree. But it must be pointed out that the felonious behavior of juveniles is often broadly defined. That said, many believe that juvenile infractions, serious youthful misdeeds, of which a firearms seller or background checker would normally have no cognizance, should be accessible if the Transaction of a lethal weapon is to occur. It also addresses the boyfriend loophole. According to Leider, quote, The most significant provision in the bill is the prohibition against firearm possession by those convicted of a misdemeanor violent crime against a dating partner. Closely the, I'm sorry, closing the boyfriend loophole. But the senators who negotiated this bill evidently could not agree on the definition of a dating partner. That seems like a problem to me. (laughs) They define, again quoting Leiter, dating relationship as a relationship between individuals who have or have recently had a continuing serious relationship of a romantic or intimate nature. End quote. But, as Leiter points out, quote, relationships come in all forms, and this definition provides little guidance. The Senators provided three criteria for consideration. One, the length of the relationship. Two, the nature of the relationship. And three, the frequency and type of interaction between the people involved in the relationship. This means that a continuing serious relationship will be some function of quantity of dates, length of time, and physical intimacy. But these vague factors don't provide fair notice and are susceptible to inconsistent application. His criticism is well taken. A dating relationship today is very different from what it used to be even a decade ago. Gone are the chivalric days of tossing pebbles at windows, passing furtive notes in hallways, and calling her on her family's phone To whose other end, usually an inquisitive parent, you were obligated to introduce yourself. (laughs) Remember that? Hello, Mrs. Johnson, this is Daniel. Is Ashley there? (laughs) Well, nowadays, some quite serious dating relationships exist strictly online, each partner being ignorant of the sound of his beloved's voice. Could my Instagram girlfriend remotely flag me and begin the process of dispossessing me of my guns? Congress, Leiter concludes, must be more specific. Nevertheless, the bill is now headed to President Biden, by whom it'll be signed and likely made into law. Our next topic, the Supreme Court sluice gates open and decisions pour out. Three important decisions were handed down by the Supreme Court this week. The first addressed religious freedom. The second, gun rights. The third, abortion. It so happens that the order of their release agrees with their order of importance. The first case, and that about which people are talking least, addresses religious freedom. The case, Carson v. Macon, for which... Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the decision is being applauded as a great victory for religious freedom, a fundamental right in this country on which, as we saw during the past two years with our government's heavy-handed response to the COVID pandemic, many secular forces are eager to encroach. Decided on a six to three vote, the case dealt with a program enacted in Maine whereby the state would provide tuition assistance for the parents of children who, quote, live in school districts that neither operate a secondary school of their own, nor contract with a particular school in another district, end quote. Under this program, parents living in Maine's remote areas of which, if you've ever visited that beautifully wooded state, it has many, would be able to decide on the school to which they'd send their children. We take for granted that public schools are always a stone's throw from our houses. A state like Maine, for whose vast expanse of woodland and hills many outdoorsmen take the journey north, they lack this convenience. And so, in theory, the program is sound. What was deemed unsound, though, at least from a constitutional perspective, was the way in which the state went about allocating its funds, of which religious institutions were prohibited from being the recipients. This not only restricted parental freedom and choice, but actively discriminated against religious schools. Maine, you see, limited tuition assistance payments to non-sectarian or non-religious schools. It permitted payments, however, to other private schools, even if they differed from main public schools in various ways. Quoting from the decision, petitioners sought tuition assistance to send their children to Bangor Christian Schools and Temple Academy, a Christian and a Jewish school. These schools, of course, are quite openly sectarian, being faithful advocates of their respective sects for this reason, Maine deemed them ineligible to receive payments from those families receiving state vouchers, whose purpose is to defray the cost of attendance. The petitioner sued the commissioner of the Maine Department of Education, alleging that the non-sectarian requirement violated the Free Exercise and the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment. The majority of the court agreed. Note, this isn't the state's active establishment or elevation of a religious sect. Maine is no more an avowedly Christian state than Florida is a Jewish one. It simply gives parents the freedom to choose the school to which they'd send their children, including religious schools, in their scope of choice. The state gives money to the parent, by whom the school is then chosen, If the parent can choose a private secular school, she should be able to choose a private religious school. The state cannot withhold otherwise available public benefits from religious institutions. This was the decision of an earlier case, Trinity Lutheran, which held that the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment did not permit, quote, "...Missouri to expressly discriminate against otherwise eligible recipients by disqualifying them from a public benefit solely because of their religious character. End quote. Another case, Espinosa v. Montana, clarifies the point even further. Quote, a state need not subsidize private education. There is no fundamental mandate compelling it to do so. But once a state decides to do so, it cannot disqualify some private schools solely because they are religious. The same principles were applied in this case. Uh, next, we turn to the Bruin case, for which Justice Clarence Thomas delivered the majority opinion. The case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, challenged a New York state law by which a citizen's right to carry a concealed weapon was restricted, unless he could prove that, quote, proper cause existed for his doing so. To note... New York state law makes it a crime to possess a firearm without a license—whether inside or outside the home—a standard, I don't think, to which car ownership is subjected. An interesting aside, as the number of deaths from vehicles far exceeds the number from guns. The trouble with the New York law, on which the majority of the court was quick to pounce is the conditional statement if he can prove that proper cause exists for his owning a gun, and what, according to the New York law, qualifies as proper cause. The proper cause clause is satisfied if the applicant den- can demonstrate a, quote, special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community, end quote. His life, it appears, must be specially valuable and worthy of protection. But by whom is the specialness of his life to be measured? With whom can he argue that his life is deserving of self-defense? Well, a government official, who else? A judge, a county clerk, a law enforcement officer. These people, often political appointees, are to use somewhat arbitrary metrics to decide just how important you are. (laughs) Don't we all, in the so-called general community, affix to our lives special importance that would make its defense and preservation somewhat desirable? From Plato to Hugo Grotius, you'd be hard-pressed to find a philosopher who'd disagree. Thus, the court's conservative Philosophs decided that New York's proper cause requirement violates the 14th and 2nd Amendments. Thomas's opinion, in which his reasoning is laid out, is lucid, unpretentious, shrewd, historically sound, and well worth your reading. In short, it affirms that, quote, "...ordinary, law-abiding citizens have a similar right to carry handguns publicly for their self-defense." This was, in so many words, the conclusion at which the prior cases Heller and MacDonald arrived, precedents to which Bruin repeatedly referred. And as an aside, to the victors go the pink slips. According to the Wall Street Journal, the two lawyers representing the New York Rifle and Pistol Association, Paul Clement and Aaron Murphy, faced the following ultimatum from the Chicago-based law firm for which they work. Drop their gun clients or quit the firm. Yes, you heard that right. After winning a massive victory before the Supreme Court, an achievement of a lifetime about which most attorneys can only dream, Clement and Murphy are being forced out of their jobs at Kirkland and Ellis. Apparently. Kirkland & Ellis is the type of firm whose staff and clientele find gun rights politically unpalatable. Perhaps they find the Constitution equally disagreeable to their taste. As the Wall Street Journal sharply concludes, When it comes to core constitutional rights versus corporate retainers that finance summer homes in the Hamptons, the Constitution is a second-class citizen. Finally, the piece de resistance for which, since its unprecedented and still unpunished leak a month ago, everyone has been breathlessly waiting. The decision of Dobbs vs. Jackson Women's Health. The monumental decision by which Roe vs. Wade and Casey vs. Planned Parenthood have been, in one fell swoop, overturned, was handed down on Friday of this past week. For some more background on the history of this case, you can listen to my first ticklish topic installment, on which I outline Roe and Casey. The former was decided in 1973, the latter in 1992. In brief, Roe and Casey attempted to locate in the Constitution a right for a woman to procure an abortion. They did so by reading into the text an ambiguous right to privacy, of which, to everyone's Lasting frustration, the Constitution makes no explicit mention. Uh, Justice Blackman, who at one point in his career was counsel for the Mayo Clinic, was tapped to write Roe's decision, uh, doubtless because of his vast experience in the medical field. The result was scarcely scientific, far from moral, and above all, incompatible with the Constitution. During the earliest stage of gestation, he wrote, that time coinciding with the first trimester when the fetus is deemed pre-viable, abortion could be lawfully procured. Thereafter, as the unborn child developed, the state's interest in protecting its life increased until the hour of its birth. His rationale left open many questions, not least the constitutional basis for his ingenious system. Uh, Roe and Casey, as even the most liberal constitutional scholars will mm, openly admit, was poorly decided. The late Ruth Bader Ginsburg said as much. Uh, Justice Samuel Alito, in his majority opinion for Dobbs, was a bit more colorful in his description of its shortcomings, calling them, quote, egregiously wrong from the start, Its reasoning, he goes on to say, was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences. And far from bringing about a national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. Every honest observer would have to agree with Alito's assessment. Now the issue of abortion will revert to the states, in whose legislative assemblies it will be taken up and surely hotly debated. Some states, like New York and California, will have more permissive abortion laws. Others like Texas and Mississippi will have stricter ones. The central point is that the democratically elected representatives in those states will legislate according to the needs, morals, whims, and mores of the various citizens whom they represent. Now, it's for the people and their legislators to decide. Not nine lawyers, robed in black, undemocratically raised to positions with lifetime appointments. A lengthy, and I do mean lengthy, dissent was put forth by the three progressive justices, uh, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. It's more political than it is constitutional, uh, but merits your uh, quick read. Now, Justice Thomas wrote a somewhat portentous concurrence, in which the idea of substantive due process is thoroughly, and I do think effectively, attacked. Uh, creation of the Tawny Court in 1856, Substantive due process, for all intents and purposes, confers upon the judicial branch a supra-legislative power. It gives the court the ability to accomplish things far outside its scope, like proclaim rights to a gay marriage or contraception. Now, this will be a fight for another day. I'm not saying where I stand on these issues, but they will be adjudicated in time to come. And finally, this last story can't go unmentioned, President Biden falls off his bike as the economy falls off a cliff. President Biden fell off his bicycle. Upon coming to a stop in front of a group of hometown supporters in Delaware, he tried to disembark from the steely two-wheeled vessel from which he inelegantly suffered a fall. Clad in gloves, a helmet, his signature eyewear, and a pair of blue Nike sneakers, he struck his right knee and hip, areas not uncommonly fractured in men of his age. It was rather piteous than humorous to watch, especially for someone like me, whose job, whose day job at least, makes him all too keenly aware of the five-year mortality rate for octogenarians who break their hips. This latest tumble befalls a man who, if you'll recall, broke a bone in his foot when running away from his dog. I believe he was naked at the time. This same man, only a few months later, tripped not once, not twice, but thrice, while attempting and ingloriously failing to climb a set of stairs leading to Air Force One. Now we witness our president... The leader of the free world, fall off his bike from a standing position. Combined with his slurred speech, his constant forgetfulness, his vacant stare, his vapid mind, his reptilian face, his halting gait, his inveterate irascibility, his imbalance only makes him look older and ever more fragile. And, speaking of fragility, the economy is on the brink of recession. As if you needed me to tell you. Indeed, it may already be in a recession. Two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth officially declare a recession. Now, we've had one quarter already, and every indicator points to another forthcoming. Stocks remain down nearly 20% as inflation has surpassed 8%. We're leading the world in that category, contrary to what the president has said. Uh, The Federal Reserve is planning more interest rate hikes through the course of the summer and into the next year, as American consumers begin to clip their coupons and count their pennies. And you surely don't need me to tell you about the gas prices that you're paying to fill my little humble Honda's 10 gallon tank I just paid a cool fifty-one dollars. And for our quote of the week, the segment for which everyone awaits with bated breath, we turn to the English novelist Charles Reed who said, Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. In short, be mindful of each and every act, for that creates your habits, your habits create your character, and your character your destiny. And with that, I want to thank you for joining me on this busy episode of Finneran's Wake. I do apologize for how much I stuffed into that second segment. It's been a quite eventful week uh, with multiple monumental Supreme Court decisions being issued. Now again, uh, they covered everything from gun rights to religious freedom to abortion rights now i hope my uh, covering of them uh, offered you a little bit of uh, a little bit of a fuller understanding of what exactly is happening i hope that you can see through some of the passion and some of the riotous behavior uh, to which we've all been exposed and understand things a little bit more clearly now if you Find this content enjoyable, delightful, entertaining, enlightening. Please do me the honor of subscribing to this channel. Leave on it a five-star rating if you can. Send me an email at fineranswake at gmail.com for any criticisms, questions, or compliments. I'm accepting of all three. And above all, I wish you well. And until next week, farewell from Finerans Wake.